Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, for our first podcast of the new year, we're going to be looking at the web publishing platform Medium, which has just changed its business model, which affects a lot of new media organizations and a lot of journalists. We're going to turn then to Russia, which has become a fault line in journalism as the left and the right and fake news and Trump all sort of come together in a debate about what all that means. And finally, big changes at Fox News with Megyn Kelly out to NBC and her replacement with yet another white man in the lineup for primetime on Fox. We'll debate what that's all about and what, whether we should care and why we should care. Leading us once again this week is CJR's man on the street, Dave Uberti. Hello, Dave. Hey, Kyle. Happy New Year. Same to you. How was your holiday? It was fantastic. Not long enough, but uh, journalism comes at us fast. We're back into the swing of things. We are indeed. We've got, what, three weeks until uh, Inauguration Day? I think two in a day. Two in a day. Yeah. So here we go. Here we go indeed. And joining me again this week to break down these topics are Nausicaa Renner, Tau Editor for Columbia Journalism Review. Nausicaa, what's up? Happy New Year. You as well. And also one of my favorite guests on the program, Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow for CJR. Pete, Happy New Year. Oh, thanks for calling me your favorite. How was that, uh, that Twitter purge that you were going to put yeah, yourself through? No, that didn't happen. Okay, well, <laughs> big surprise there. First <laughs> but up. But it's good to be back. Right, indeed. First up, the medium is the message, or rather, medium is the message. Medium, as a lot of people in the business know, is a tech platform, publishing platform, blogging platform, choose whichever descriptor you'd like to use, uh, that a lot of small and mid-scale publishers like to put their content on. And yesterday, Medium CEO Ev Williams wrote a post on the site drastically reorienting the platform's business strategy going forward. And here is a quotable quote from his Medium post. Upon further reflection, it's clear that the broken system is ad-driven media on the internet. It simply doesn't serve people. In fact, it's not designed to. The vast majority of articles, videos, and other, quote, content we all consume on a daily basis is paid for, directly or indirectly, by corporations who are funding it in order to advance their goals. He goes on, We believe people who write and share ideas should be rewarded on their ability to enlighten and inform, not simply their ability to attract a few seconds of attention. Pete, why were so many journalists on Twitter and social media going crazy over this yesterday? First, I guess we should kind of talk a little bit more about what Medium has meant to journalists. It, as you mentioned, is this platform designed by Ev Williams, one of the Twitter co-founders. And it basically was, when it was founded in 2012, seen as a really beautiful, streamlined platform for people to put their content out there to eliminate some of the back-end logistics that take up man hours and money. And then in the last year or so, Medium made this big push to bring in publishers to host their websites. So you saw places like The All, The Ringer, Pacific Standard going to Medium. And I think one of the reasons people were up in arms was because a lot of these publishers weren't informed that these changes were coming. And then another reason is because the memo that Ev wrote was specific in its cuts and who would be leaving, but not very specific in what came next. Um, there was this divide between here's what has gone wrong and we're going to fix things and make it better, but he didn't really get to any there there about where the platform was headed. It gets into sort of like uh, an I told you so from a lot of uh, mainstream journalists. Here we had a tech firm come into the arena a couple of years ago saying that 
you know, we can streamline processes, we can make your site beautiful, we can take care of tech and sort of the production uh, stuff that you guys don't like to do. We can do that a lot better. And here you are coming to the same realization that all of us in the publishing industry have come to in the last couple of years. So there it is. I told you so. Now what? Right. It seems like there was this divide between the realities of revenue, which Medium, we don't have their internal numbers, but they were getting a ton of page views and uh, they were getting a lot of readers. But the way it was framed in the memo was that the platform had fallen into this path of least resistance where it was just chasing page views the same way any other publisher would be. And that came up against their Silicon Valley idealism. Medium is faced with an identity crisis over whether or not it wants to be a publisher or a platform. Originally, it went into it thinking that it wanted to be a platform, and it found itself drifting into being a publisher more and more. Likewise, I think that you could read this announcement a couple of different ways. If you look at it from the publisher's perspective, from an editorial perspective, it looks really thin, like they are moving away from a revenue model toward what exactly? They want to be more, quote, transformative, but how do you do that? What does it mean? Like, publishers are all up against this question, and I think there's some skepticism about whether or not Medium can solve it, and they haven't put forth any specific ideas, so we'll see. But on the other hand, if you look at it as somebody in Silicon Valley might look at it, this is a bold move, and it's in the tradition of move fast and break things. It's saying, look, we're a year into this particular model. It's not working. We're not going to stick with it. We're going to try and envision a third way forward. And that's a really exciting place to be in. So I think the proof will be in the pudding. And we don't know yet where they're going to take it. I, I for one, am slightly excited that at least somebody is acknowledging this issue and trying to push the industry away from it. I mean, do you think that the issue hasn't been acknowledged by the industry. I think generally speaking, if you talk to a lot of publishers, particularly people in sort of like the metro news business, they will also say, hey, advertising sucks in terms of basing your business model off of that. But yeah. no one has a real good alternative, least of all sort of like metro publishers or mid-level publishers. You have places like the New York Times who are big enough and sort of trusted enough where they, they can build their business around subscription models or places like ProPublica, which is also reader revenue in some sense. But the schadenfreude regarding this snapback to reality where nobody really has new answers and just because you're a cool tech firm that's much cooler than our old media company, you also don't have answers. Well, so acknowledgement maybe isn't the right word. It's more that if anybody is in a position to try to push for this, it's the co-founder of Twitter, who clearly has a lot of clout in the tech world and also has one foot in publishing. And we'll just, to be, just to be clear, it's not like Medium, or, or perhaps we're not sure, was Medium failing from a revenue standpoint or was it failing from an idealistic standpoint? Because it seems like he's leaning more towards, you know, we were getting traditional metrics and we right. were doing fine and our publishers were happy with the services we were providing, but we weren't meeting our own idealistic standards. So I think, I think it's a couple things. They said in the post that their traffic was up by 300% over the past year. They also said that the ad revenue model that they made specifically for publishers who moved on to Medium was not working. And they said that ideologically they weren't sure that they wanted to go in that direction anyway. They were going the path of least resistance toward this already established model. So a mix. It wasn't failing, but I think there's probably a lot of excitement toward trying out something new among people that are funding Medium. 
Well, and it sounds like you guys have There's the kicker right there. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you guys have different perspectives where, Nuska, you're okay with the embracing of optimistic, idealistic, you know, disruption, and Dave, you're You the make it sound like that's a bad thing. No, no, no. Um, and, Dave and is over here. I'm as a, a crotchety 25-year-old yeah. man. <laughs> you just want to go back, get those banner ads up, <laughs> count your pennies. No, um, no, I don't want to go back. I mean, like, I, I think one of the interesting uh, things from Ev, Ev Williams' uh, post on Medium was basically he said, so we are shifting our resources and attention to defining a new model for writers and creators to be rewarded based on the value they're creating for people, dot, dot, dot. It is too soon to say exactly what this will look like. Which to me, obviously, as someone who thinks about the media a lot, sums up our inherent struggle with this question for the last 10 to 15 years. My total speculation is that they are going to go in the, the route that Chartbeat went. So Chartbeat for those of you who don't know, is an analytics company. It works much like Google Analytics, but I think last year they sort of shifted their model so that instead of trying to look at traffic and numbers and page views, they were going to figure out ways of measuring attention and try to change the metrics by which we judge content. And it's another company that is trying to see a way of actually measuring, you know, the, the worth of content to people and to bring that back to the industry. And I, I sort of suspect that Medium, if they're not in cahoots with Chartbeat, they're at least going the same, the same Taking route. Taking notes. Yeah, exactly. Speaking as the curmudgeonly podcast host over here and uh, criticizing them implicitly, I guess, I am, like, forever grateful for people like them who are trying to find at least, you know, some path forward for other publishers too so I hope they keep at it. We'll Meanwhile they've made a lot of people very upset. Next topic from Russia with love. Over the past six weeks the Washington Post published two, count them, two supposed bombshell stories about alleged Russian hacking that turned out to be false. The first, in late November, claimed the Kremlin was behind a massive fake news operation in the United States and the second that the Kremlin had launched a cyber attack on the U.S. electrical grid. Both were widely promoted by top journalists from the Post and other mainstream outlets, and later on, in much less heralded moves, the Post appended editor's notes to each story, basically refuting them. It seems like Russia is one of these emerging fault lines among mainstream journalists, their coverage compared to more left-wing journalists or more right-wing journalists. And Glenn Greenwald, who's been particularly outspoken about this and other overlapping topics, published a typically Greenwaldian post basically tearing apart the Washington Post yesterday, castigating them for promoting what he called or at least equated to false news in some senses. Greenwald writes, quote, whether the Post's false stories here can be distinguished from what is commonly called, quote, fake news is, at this point, a semantic dispute, particularly since, quote, fake news has no cogent definition. Defenders of fake news as a distinct category typically emphasize intent in order to differentiate it from bad journalism. That's really just a way of defining fake news so as to make it definitionally impossible for mainstream media outlets like the Post ever to be guilty of it, much the way terrorism is designed to ensure the United States government and its allies cannot by definition, ever commit it. Noska, what do you make about this idea of intent and how it matters in our discussion around fake news? I found the comparison to the U.S. government defining terrorism to be extremely revealing. I think I agree with him that it, that it is similar in that it's part of the U.S. government's job to 
define terrorism for its citizens in order that it can take a position against, you know, militant groups that threaten the U.S. in some way. Whether or not their definition is problematic is another question. Similarly, I kind of think it is newspapers' jobs in, to define what fake news is. I don't think that's the argument that Glenn is making. I think he's making the argument that the U.S. government's definition of terrorism is a really hypocritical definition because it prevents the U.S. from ever being accused of it. I sort of read his argument, which is, you know, one of the reasons I agree with it is that he is basically saying that there are two problems. There's fake news and there's bad journalism. Journalists have actual power to control one of those things, which I think is a demonstrably correct argument to make at this point. And regardless of the intent of someone who makes bad news or does bad reporting, the end effect of those things can be similar. Uh, so we should prioritize one over the other, basically. Yeah, I guess what I would say is that I think journalists are allowed to make mistakes, but these mistakes are huge and they should be instructive. I think you're right in saying that we should learn from the Washington Post mistakes and that Greenwald is you know, right to point out those mistakes. The, this other question, though, is about intention and whether the intentions of the people behind the, behind the production of a story matter when the end result is the same. If there's a story out there in the Washington Post about the Russians hacking into a Vermont power utility, and there's a story out there on AmericanEagleFreedomNet.co.com about, <laughs> you know, a pizza shop. That was that, a pretty good fake news site. I think that's a real one. You should yeah. check it out. <laughs> uh, but uh, if there's a story, Pizzagate story out there, if the result is the same, that the public is misinformed, does it matter what the motivations are behind that, whether the intention is to deceive or make money or whatever, versus whether the intention is to tell a true story that you just get wrong and misinform the public. I feel like that's more where his argument's coming from. Also something that Greenwald seems to understand that others maybe don't is how people on the right will understand it when the Post publishes this type of story. In the first part of the Post, he actually Sorry, I'm using the word post like right. 20 times in one sentence. First part of the article. In, in the first part of the article, Greenwald calls out Marty Barron for basically tweeting about original post scoop about the grid, but then not following up and saying that it was wrong. And as Dave and Pete know, this is one of my, like, my pet peeves, is when journalists don't think about how they are portraying themselves as a whole brand on Twitter. Marty Baron didn't think Twitter is a place where I also need to send a correction now. Right. This is going to be really important going forward. There's also something to be said for the fact when you publish a scoop, that is always, no matter what, going to get more play, more shares, more attention, always, compared to if you put an editor's note at the bottom of your story. Even if you were to reshare that, no one's going to see on Twitter, editors note, the Post screwed up a story massively yesterday. No one's going to click on that. Right, and they're not going to put the retraction in 24-point bold type on the top of A1 in the physical paper either, or at least in extremely rare circumstances, and certainly this wasn't one of them. So, yeah, once the story's out there, it has a life of its own, and, and he talks about this, the number of re retweets that Barron's initial sharing of the story got, and comparing that to the lack of a retraction on Twitter later. One of the broader reasons this upset me is that y you brought up sort of like the right wing and how they 
have an, a, a different way of viewing this than people within establishment politics or liberal circles would see it. And I, I feel like the battle over quote-unquote fake news and that actual narrow definition of fake news is already lost within conservative politics because they feel so much distrust for the mainstream media that they've been wronged for X, Y, and Z reasons for so long that they are not going to abide by any strict definition of fake news. And now what has really upset me about the Post's reporting in particular, but also other mainstream outlets in general toward their treatment of Russian interference in the United States election, or at least alleged interference in the United States election, is that they have on several different cases gotten it extremely wrong. And with Post reporting in particular, that has really rubbed progressive and liberal groups the wrong way. So now we not only have difficulty talking about fake news on the right, but we also have an increasing difficulty of talking about fake news on the left. So, in your eyes, are fake news and bad journalism two sides of the same coin? I, I think they're different coins, but, I mean, as I, as I put it earlier... Like a dime and a penny, or like <laughs> a quarter and a nickel, I, or... I actually think f fake news, so I would, I would say bad reporting is a quarter, fake news is a dime. I think Interesting. I think so, so, so bad journalism is, is far worse than fake news. I think bad journalism is far worse than fake news because A, it happens more often and is transmitted to more people, and B, it's the thing that we actually have control over. Like, there's a reason why journalists have been looking toward Facebook in particular to combat fake news. It's because Facebook owns us and we see them as sort of like the only way out of this terrible situation. But in the meantime, we should, you know, focus back on the fundamentals and make sure we get stuff right before we publish it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to play with the metaphors. I might see... It's a Susan B. Anthony dollar. No, I was going to be like, <laughs> if, if fake news is a dollar, then bad journalism is like a euro <laughs> or something. Like, I don't think these are operating in the same... They're not, they're not on the same spectrum. Yeah, fake news, if we keep a strict definition of fake news, and again, this word, this phrase has gotten just completely lost all meaning over the last six weeks it feels like but fake news is something that is invented whole cloth like and in the strictest definition it's a hoax. It is, yeah it is a hoax it's intended to deceive it is based on no reporting it is it, it is just something somebody dreams up whether that is GRU hackers or Macedonian teenagers or whoever it is invented whole cloth and Bad reporting is something completely different. Again, I get Greenwald's point about the results being the same and this muddling of what is the truth and trust in media and all of those things. But you mentioned earlier, journalists only have control of one of those uh, currencies. And that's why, in our money metaphor, um, <laughs> I see it, uh, you know, them as two completely separate currencies. Journalists have to do a better job, both in their reporting, in their reactions to when they get a story wrong and hopefully we get fewer wrong and uh, yeah I, I don't know how I haven't figured out yet how like specifically the Russian fault line fits into all of this but I do think that's a really interesting and, and extremely uh, topical issue right now because so much of the argument left right ultra you know far left and mainstream is over this topic wait can one of you explain the term Russian fault line because I think that's something that we've started using in the CJR <laughs> office to describe something really specific and really interesting but I don't think it's a it's a widely used term okay so we have this issue in politics and in the media of did Russia interfere in American politics if so how much and traditionally... And how should the media cover right, it? Right, and how should the media cover it? And it gets wrapped up in politics also, right? Traditionally, those on the right 
are more hawkish on Russia. Those on the left um, are more interested in diplomatic relations and strengthening bonds and the Obama communism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, some, some on the left, sure. Socialism. Uh, all the way over there. But um, with Trump coming into office and Russian meddling, again, maybe we're comfortable saying to some extent, you're seeing these divisions with roles switching where some on the right are defending Russia. I'm, I'm talking now about the right-wing press or saying that Russia had no influence. And then within the left, you have kind of mainstream left press or center-left press saying this was a huge deal, this needs to be talked about more. And others on the far left, um, where you might place Greenwald saying, we need more evidence, we haven't proved this yet, stop jumping into 1950s-style witch hunts of everything has to be the Russians' fault. The specter hanging over all of this is the lead-up to the Iraq war, right? You're now having people on the right saying, why should we trust the intelligence community? Um, why should we report as fact what they are saying? When we haven't seen the evidence, we've heard from very well-sourced reported stories in major newspapers that the intelligence community agrees that there was some level of Russian interference and hacking into the DNC servers. Right. But now we're, are we taking this too far? Are we going back to where we were in 2002, 2003? Right. Where Which we the media is still very sore about. Sure, and, and rightfully so, should be concerned about. And I think some like Greenwald, who, you know, I don't know, do we describe him as the far left or just anti-establishment? Sure, sure. Whatever. Um, he has good reason to be distrustful of security services from right. the U.S. and other allies. He's saying, do not fall back into this pattern that we had in two, the early 2000s of just taking at face value what the intelligence community says, being stenographers, do, do a little bit more skeptical thinking. Uh, and I think that's where the fault line that we're talking about between um, the mainstream left pressed press and whether you want to call them apolitical or far left critics where that fault line is occurring. So what journalism has to do is make sure they're not sounding the drumbeat for war or maybe the mouse click for cyber war. All right, and last up, what does the Fox know? What's going on at Fox News? Pete, what's happening at America's leading cable news network this week? The long-awaited bombshell of Megyn Kelly's future employment has been dropped. Uh, she will be headed to NBC News to run a Sunday evening news magazine program to have a daytime hour. We're not quite sure exactly what that that's going to look like yet. But she, as one of Fox's biggest stars, is no longer there. And then we recently learned that her 9 o'clock TV show hour will be filled by Tucker Carlson, who has become something of a shooting star in the 7 o'clock hour, sometimes outdrawing Megyn Kelly. He's also a very pro-Trump voice at the network. Um, so we have, to some extent, some answers about what the direction of Fox News will be under the Donald Trump presidency. So now in Fox primetime, we have Bill O'Reilly, the king of cable news. We have Tucker Carlson, who is the founder and editor or former editor-in-chief, I should say, of Daily Caller, which is a conservative news and opinion website. And then finally, we have Sean Hannity, who is uh, Trump's lead water carrier. So three older white guys, all of them Trump supporters. Should we care about either of those two things? I'm just not totally clear on what it means for Fox's strategy. I, I kind of agree to an extent. I don't know if it really matters. I, like, I mean, it definitely, it definitely matters. Right, exactly. It matters. But I'm not sure. I, I can't tell whether or not it's part of 
their larger strategy of becoming part of the Trump camp. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly this question looming over Fox with the exit of Roger Ailes amid sexual harassment allegations this summer of where exactly the news organization would go. The thing that Ailes was famous for, if you talk to Sherman or other Fox chroniclers, is that he could really drive a message throughout every hour of programming, throughout all of the programs, despite having different hosts. So when he left, it was a question of what that message would be, whether Fox would continue to try to have a singular editorial message coming from its opinion hosts, which draw the largest audiences in particular. I and think there was also a question of whether they would stick with the Aelsian opinion-driven primetime hours. There was this idea that perhaps they'd go in a, in a news direction, promoting somebody like Shep Smith, Brett Baer, somebody who was more news-focused rather than opinion-driven. And I think that's where we can say, okay, this decision matters, is that they've made it clear they're going to stick with the big pers personality. You know, Megyn Kelly was a big personality, but also was seen as, or is seen as a journalist in a way that Bill O'Reilly certainly is not. Opinion over journalism is something that we can say, well, that matters. That answers some questions that brought up by Ailes' exit back in the summer. I guess I would disagree. Obviously, this is all speculation at this point because it's very early on. But I guess I do think that it's an interesting development that they put Carlson. Obviously, people on the left will say, oh, here's another white guy in Fox. Fox doesn't care about anyone on the left. But I think the more interesting way to look at it is through the prism of politics. And it's the place where Fox positions itself in the nexus of politics and media. You have three sort of aggrieved white opinionators in your primetime hours. This, to me, is a message that they're going to continue the broader Fox culture war in the sphere of media and establishment politics. And that very closely, I think, aligns them with Donald Trump, his rhetoric, both on the campaign trail and as president-elect. You have Carlson, who's you know, made the most noise in mainstream circles over the last couple of months by basically showing it to mainstream journalists in a way, playing a contrarian figure on air, which he does so to great effectiveness and gets huge ratings. You have obviously Bill O'Reilly, who does a similar thing, albeit in like a more heavy-handed style. And then, of course, Hannity, who on his program the other night had Julian Assange for an interview. So I think they are, in some senses, at least they've taken steps to align themselves for that sort of discussion. Not to continue playing devil's advocate too much, because I think it's pretty bad that Fox doesn't have anybody besides an old white man, but... Another thing that comes to mind is just that, I mean, Tucker Carlson already had airtime, right, before he got promoted to this right. position. And so in order to maintain diversity, I mean, diversity in newsrooms is a huge problem. One of the reasons that it's a huge problem is because there are people who are sort of grandfathered in or teed up for certain roles. And, you know, you might have somebody of color in a top role, but you don't have somebody as a deputy. So when that person leaves, you don't have somebody who is a ready bench. to step up. Exactly. It sort of feels like that's part of what happened here is that Tucker Carlson was like really teed up for this role and it made sense for him. Right. But then it ended up with a totally homogenous lineup. Right. I mean, he was killing it in the seven o'clock hour. He yeah. was doing good ratings. Uh, and we should mention that uh, his old role, his seven o'clock hour is going to Martha McCallum who's been at Fox News for a dozen years. It's a veteran kind of presence there. So in that four-hour block, if you want to extend it, they will still have the same ratio of three guys and a woman. But that 9 o'clock hour between O'Reilly and Hannity uh, is seen as kind of the, the crown jewel. The fact that he's been so successful 
is exactly what you're talking about. He was kind of the next in line, and it was his spot to lose, I guess, in some ways, in a way that might surprise some Fox watchers, because there was, in the 24 hours after Kelly's announcement, some speculation that it would go to another woman from Fox's bench. So do you guys think that Fox is just not interested in courting a certain viewership anymore? Anymore. Uh, continuing to be, I think, in some senses. I mean, it's good business for them. They've, they've figured out a formula. They figured it out a long time ago. It seems to be as if they're sticking to it. If you're approaching this from a business perspective, I don't know why you would want to change. They, I, they, I they figured wonder, out a good formula. I wonder if Trump presented them with, with some level of concern that they were getting outflanked to the right. Megyn Kelly took a pretty clear stand, if not against Trump, then certainly a more skeptical view than a lot of conservative viewers were happy with. And you could see that in the way that some on the right were celebrating that she had decided to leave, that this right. voice who was standing up to Trump at times was out. And so I wonder if their embrace of, of Trump supporting uh, opinionators is something of a business decision to make sure that they didn't lose viewers who are on the right, you know, like kind of playing to your base. Although right. they did offer her reportedly $25 million to stay. <laughs> so Trump they change. weren't, they weren't, yeah. <laughs> they wanted they, her. <laughs> yeah, they did want her. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, that's like one of the broad questions going forward as well, sort of what happens to Fox News with the explosion of conservative websites online. Breitbart has been one of the big stories of the 2016 campaign, and obviously they are further right on the ideological spectrum in a lot of respects than is Fox News traditionally. But I just wanted to finish off here with a quick lightning round and answer me as fast as possible. <laughs> Don't think twice about it. Who's your favorite cable news personality? Oh, oh that's so easy. Jake Tapper. Big Eagles fan. Maybe, um, what's his name? Wolf. You like Wolf Blitzer? Yes, Wolf Blitzer. I like him. I really like his, tw his Twitter presence. You like his really? beard? What's on his Twitter presence? It's mostly just photos of him at v various, like, CNN locales. Over the years. Yeah, and he's just like, hey, like, excited to, <laughs> like, be your anchor tonight again. <laughs> <laughs> just like yesterday. Yes. <laughs> Dave, who's your favorite cable news presence? Van Jones, 100%. I know he's not a journalist, but I think, you know, among the sea of talking heads on cable, most of them, I think, are terrible. Who I think Van Jones is, like, a great great presence. He was a former Obama administration official. He's on CNN now. He appears oftentimes alongside Jeffrey Lord and some of the other folks they have on at night. Uh, he just, to me, seems just like a really calm presence on a, on a medium that I think is built around, to some extent, scaring the hell out of people. I will also say that I've had a decade-long crush on George Stephanopoulos. Really? Love wow. him. Whoa. Love him. Well, hopefully he's listening. You can <laughs> Honestly, hopefully not. <laughs> didn't think you were a Good Morning America person, but here we are. No, well, I, I was watching him when he was on, was it Meet the Press? This was like before I was aware of how these shows were different from each other. And then also he was one of Clinton's campaign right. leads. I think he was a communications person. Yeah, so he and James Carville. Um, and there was one summer during college when I was working at a video archive and I had to watch probably like 200 hours of footage from the Clinton campaign of George Stephanopoulos and James wow. Carville, and they had these matching jean jackets. They were sort of embossed, and it was, it was just incredible. They were such a team. Wow. The Raging Cajun and a future Good Morning America host. Yes. You decided that you were going to have your crush on Stephanopoulos rather than Carville? Well... <laughs> <laughs> 
we know we know where your uh, where your sympathies lie. Pete. Oh, Jake Tapper all the time. Right. I should mention that in addition to being an Eagles fan, he's also a very good journalist. Right, right. <laughs> but one of those things might be more important than the other. We will cut it off there. Another episode of the Kicker. Thanks for joining us. Uh, joining me in the studio where I belong is Noska Renner, a Tau editor for Columbia Journalism Review. Noska, thank you for sharing with us your teenage crush. Oh my god, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> thank you, Dave. <laughs> Pete Vernon, thank you for sharing with us your journalistic crush on Jake Tapper. Thanks for having me, Dave. And I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review and Van Jones's biggest fan. We will see you next week. Bye. Thanks again for kicking it with us. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud. Please tweet and share our programs and also become a member of Columbia Journalism Review. Go to our site, cjr.org, and become a member. It's 50 bucks a year. You get a few print issues. You get a weekly column by yours truly. And in addition, you get some special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope. Once again, cjr.org. This is Dave Uberti. We'll see you next week.